Welcome to the next track. A podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. We self-produce the Next Track podcast and want to keep it ad-free, so we rely on contributions from listeners for support. You can help us by making a regular donation via Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash the next track. And thanks. Do you remember the name of our very first episode? Something about tracks, songs, and albums, something like that. Songs to albums to songs. Right. We, to- we talked about how music was long sold as singles, and then it was they were compiled into these things called albums, which were like multi-page books with shellac discs inside. And then the LP came out, and it was an album. And we were talking, this was back in 2016, our first episode, about how we'd gone back to th- listening to songs again because of the dematerialization of music due to streaming, that instead of the album, the playlist was king. Yeah, I remember that. Not clearly, but I do remember we have talked about that, and that's the sort of thing that has uh, been following us around as we do these episodes. Um, I I think that's only tightened up, actually. You know, one of the things I've been noticing in my search for a generalized, unified theory of everything um, is that we used to listen to albums. I mean, not just listen to albums because we had them. I mean, we would literally put an album on and listen to it all the way through and learn all the songs on it, and that sort of thing. Nowadays, that sort of thing doesn't really happen. In fact, even with older music, moderns aren't listening to the albums that the tracks that they hear are from. They hear the tracks, and they see it in a playlist, and they put a check mark in it on their mind, and they say, oh, that's a good song. But it doesn't occur to them to say, hey, what's the... Well, I'm sorry. It doesn't occur to some of them to go out and investigate the album. What they're more likely to do is say, what genre of music is that? I wonder what else there is like that track. It may or may not be by the same artist, but it's still, track is is king. Album is just a repository where the song came from. It's not, it's not something you pay much attention to. I like how you said moderns. Is that the new word to replace like millennials, generation, whatevers? I'm trying to think. I don't, I don't like this generational name thing. Yeah. You know, boomers are called boomers because they were born during the baby boom. Right. And then everybody else seems to feel that they need a name. And I'm like, well, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. And it's not very delineated. Uh, People seem to think that young people are weird. But young people are always weird. Yeah. Uh, When we were young people, we were weird. And then the next, whatever. So I just like to say moderns. I just mean people who are... Digital natives. They are... They. Well, it's not just that. It's just that they are people who are generationally different from me because the way they do things is different from the way I do things. I don't have any problem with that. I'm not going to be the guy yelling out the window, hey, stop using emoji to express yourself. It's like, please, communicate. Do all the things that you do. Here's the world. Take it. Please vote. Do all that stuff, young people, moderns. So that's how I feel about it. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a big upper of, of moderns. Um, but it's interesting to watch. It's interesting to try to pay attention to how they listen to music as opposed to the way we would listen to music. It was just a, it's just two totally, different, two totally different manners of doing it. Well, it is and it isn't because we started out listening to songs on the radio before we had albums. So it's just 
a full, it's just come full circle. The, the reason we're talking about this is an article in The Guardian that came out a couple of days ago. The UK singles chart is 70. Is it time for it to retire? The subhead is once the top 40 was the undisputed soundtrack of a nation, but in an era when you can have a platinum record that gets to number 81, does it even make sense anymore? And I think there's two interesting things here. One is to talk about it as music consumers that we are, but also your radio experience. When you were on radio, the top 40 was what you played or whatever charts inspired what you played. Yes, you were allowed to play some old stuff every now and then, but you had a core playlist that was based on these charts. Yeah, but, you know, radio stations helped make those charts. The We, we colluded with the record companies, <laughs> you know, because they would release singles, albums would be released, and then singles would be released. So it would all be coordinated. And you'd have record weasels coming around to the radio station, you know, pitching, uh, you know, we just got a new Nirvana album. We want to play, uh, we're going to be releasing the third track in a couple of weeks. Make sure you're on it. And then uh, we're going to be releasing this fifth track in, a, in about a month. Make sure you're on it. And then there would be arguments about, well, we don't know if we have room for new music. But anyway, radio stations would help create these charts. So it's kind of like one hand washes the other. As you stimulated the consumers, the consumers went to the record stores and bought the songs that you were pushing that were rising on your chart. So there was a kind of a weird thing going on. It's, I mean, it still works that way to some degree. I'm not really sure how a lot of streamers program themselves, but it can't be that much different from the way we used to do it. And that's, you know, there's a bunch of new songs, there's a bunch of somewhat new songs, there's a bunch of recurrents. You know, they all kind of help feed the chart. The, uh, I just want to say at the beginning here, because um, we don't we don't have an well, we do have a national chart. It's like people consider Billboard, but there are plenty of other industry music industry magazines and music industry entities that have charts as well. But anyway, what they have in England is different because, well, he's talking about kids couldn't wait till Tuesday lunchtime when they announced, you know, the number one song of the week. And we, we don't have anything like that unless you consider, you know, American Top 40, which was Casey Kasem every weekend playing the hits. And that's about the closest thing we had to an official chart. People still go back and listen to those old shows too. That's kind of funny. But, um... You know, so things, thing, singles rose and went away somewhat predictably. I, I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that the UK for a long time had a vibrant weekly music press. Melody Maker, New Music Express, uh, and some others that didn't last as long. So, and, and Top of the Pops was on TV, the old Grey Whistle Test. So these were things that every week were exposing people to new music. Don't forget that this is also the period where there was only the BBC and people were listening to pirate radio to get the other stuff. Right. So it was a totally different context. Uh, I think they were starved for music, in fact. Well, it wasn't unlike what it was like here. I mean, we had top 40 radio stations more or less all playing the same sort of music. And then if you wanted to hear something different, you really had to go to some wild places like college radio or jazz clubs or coffee shops or whatever. But um, I, was, I didn't know this. If you reached a certain point on the chart, you were uh, eligible to be on Top of the Pops. Because Top of the Pops is a countdown show, right? No, not really. No, 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 not really. It was just a half a dozen people lip syncing in a half hour. 
you'd have a bunch of kids standing around dancing. It wasn't like here, this is the top 40 counting down. No, no, no. In fact, the BBC runs regularly on their iPlayer old Top of the Pops episodes or compilations from Top of the Pops episodes. Like here's here's one from 1982 and you see a bunch of things from 1982. So it wasn't the actual countdown. I see. But even so, it was if you reached a certain point though on the on the on the chart, you were eligible to be on Top of the Pops, so you could be on every week, right? Uh I don't think people were necessarily on every week. No, it was more variety. They they didn't have repeats like that. But initially the chart was made by the BBC. And so it influenced the BBC's radio and eventually the TV shows. It got taken over by a different company some years ago. What's it called? The official chart company or something like that. But it wasn't designed as a marketing tool, but it ended up being a marketing tool. Well, yeah. I think it was, no, I think it was designed by the BBC kind of like, here's the sports results, right? Yeah. My, my, feeling, that is, sort of my thing. feeling is that it was just, it was set up to... Get people to watch TV. Yeah, part of it. You know, part of it is like, look, and these songs are going to be on the television that we also own, that you should also watch. Of course, you know, again, it's different over there because the BBC is almost a public service. So it is a public service. Yeah. Considering what we have over here, um, you know, we have commercial television, so it's, it's a lot different. Well, we have commercial television, but the BBC channels aren't commercial. I was watching a recent, very interesting documentary about the Hacienda, the club in Manchester that was set up by Tony Wilson on Factory Records. And at one point, they were so excited because I think the Smiths and New Order were on top of the pops the same night. And they were so excited because this was – neither of these bands had broken out yet, right? This was the local Manchester culture that was spreading, and this was a big moment to, to expose that to the rest of the country. So Top of the Pops also served that purpose of letting you hear songs and see performers – that you wouldn't otherwise see. Now, some of them were American, some were British, et cetera. It wasn't all, you know, local talent. But when you look at some of the old Top of the Pops recordings, it's, you, you kind of get the feeling that it's not entirely subversive, but a bit, because not everyone is like the mainstream clean acts. But, but there's a rich history of, of, of performers on Top of the Pops being not quite ready for prime time, you know, change this word, don't wear that, uh, we're going to shoot you from above your waist. Yeah. Uh, those are just silly examples I can think of. But I mean, you know, there are plenty of, I, I think there's a famous uh, anecdote about New Order wanting to play live on Top of the Pops, and it sucked. So, you know, I mean, yeah. so arguments and discussions and, and, and situations would happen uh, you're right, though, the, the mainstream, that median mainstream, they, they stuck to that as, as much as they could. Well, they had to. They had mums and dads and everybody watching it, right? Yeah. And, and in fact, in this documentary, they were saying how every Friday night, everyone would go watch it, Top of the Pops. It was like a big deal for anyone who was into music. Because, again, they didn't have that many radio stations. So Well, and the other thing, the other thing that drives it, and I think the same thing that drives it over here, is that the the... You didn't have access to see the artists that you listened to on the radio. Yeah. You just didn't see them. I mean, it's really easy right now to go to YouTube and go, oh, I think I want to see that Robert Fripp concert. Back then, you did. It's like if you ever, ever saw them performing live, it would be 
a few and far between. These things just didn't happen. So to see them on television, yeah, lip syncing <laughs> even was uh, a treat. Yeah, you know, just to see a- them. Another point in this article, and I found this. I had never heard of this before. I came to the UK almost ten years ago. There is this thing called the Christmas Number One. It's the number one single the week before Christmas, and. It's like you can't have this in the U.S. in the U.S. because the the Christmas number one would always be Maria Carey, right? But over here, it's turned into a thing where it's like these battles between a bunch of bands and charity things that get together to do a song about something special, and but people have to buy it. Now they're counting streaming now as part of it, but this is something that actually sells, and people would buy it for some kind of like they're voting on the Eurovision contest for their favorites. I, you know, I and they do that with TV too. There are special Christmas episodes of TV series and things like that, and the whole Christmas of, specials. Yeah, Christmas specials. And then you know, I asked you one time about what are annuals, and you say, well, annuals come out in January. So there's this no, rich. This no, they is, come out. They come out for Christmas. They're okay. Christmas. So an annu- Great. annual is is a a, a a special issue of a magazine yeah. with a whole bunch of stuff. And there are some that come some that come out um, in the beginning of the year, but most of them are for Christmas. So right. So there's a tradition of this. Let's do something Christmas. special at Christmas. I mean, I, I hate to say it, but I think a lot of people would love to have a British Christmas in the United States. We have this idea that it's magical and wonderful and this turkey and this <laughs> this just some crazy idea about how a British Christmas is. Um, and they do seem to make these special things. It's kind of cool. We don't have it here. We don't do that. Well, it's so special. And I, I shall quote the Guardian article. For the last four years, the Christmas number one has been a charity single by a YouTube vlogger about sausage rolls. See, 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 see what happens. It's true. If you look at the last four years, the titles are We Built This City. I don't know what that is. I Love Sausage Rolls. Don't Stop Me Eating," And Sausage Rolls for Everyone. So the group is called Lad Baby. And the first three was just them. But last year, Lad Baby featuring Ed Sheeran and Elton John. Wow. So this is turning into a new tradition. Spread the word because (laughs) Americans are going to want to know about this. So interestingly, I'm looking back at the list of Christmas number one singles. And if you go to the 70s, you get something like Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. You get Mull of Kintyre by Wings. You get Another Brick in the Wall, part two by Pink Floyd. Don't You Want Me by Human League. So these were actually big deals. But then... See, this is when it changed, 1984, Band-Aid, Don't They Know It's Christmas. So that was the start of the charity single. In fact, that might have been the very first charity single. Is that right? Because they do, that's an annual thing also? That's a somewhat commonplace? No. Not, maybe not annual, but commonplace? No, it's not. The second Band-Aid single was 1989. Yeah. So, but but then there was Farm Aid in the U.S., the Willie Nelson thing, and there have been a bunch of these charity things. But, but Band-Aid was the first one that got all these musicians together for a single like that. And so that set a new trend of the the charity single. But anyway, anyway, the Guardian suggests that we no longer need this list, this top 40 list, whatever whatever it is. And why did they do that? Why do they suggest that it's it's not needed any longer? Um well, as the subhead says, you can have a platinum record that gets to number 81. People aren't buying music. They aren't buying singles anymore. You just stream it on on your streaming service. And so they're counted according to the number of streams. But a lot of times these streams aren't intentional. Spotify has some sort of a bunch of new music playlists, right? The stuff they're promoting. 
And they put in there what they want. You're not really choosing to listen to specific things other than what you would have programmed on your top 40 radio station, the same kind of thing. So this can be easily manipulated by a big streaming service pushing a single or a record label paying a streaming service to push a single or whatever. And it just doesn't make any sense because people don't buy them. I mean, we used to buy, when I was young, I bought singles before I bought any albums. Then starting in the 70s, uh, it's mostly imports, singles and B-sides of stuff that weren't on the album, singles from different countries with different... And that was, you know, the heyday of singles for me in this alternative, you know, new type of music, small labels, etc. That sort of thing was is much more prevalent in Europe, doing the singles and the EPs and the things like that. Although in the 70s, it did catch on over here because... Um, well, I, I can only speak about the Northeast, but in New York, Boston, Providence, lots of local bands, singles all the time. L.A., you always hear about that band who put singles out and they had to put them together for an album. I mean, there's, they just, singles were big for a really long time among a, a, a niche of, of, of DIY, you know, local bands. Yeah. You know, that was big. Um, and, you know, if you were going to go into the studio and record a couple of sides, that was really thrilling for for local bands um anyway i don't know why i got to that i don't know why i jumped to that didn't the band boston start like that that the guy wrote two songs and they were so popular he had to write the rest of the album i'm not sure and he played the all the instruments and wrote everything and produced it himself there are so many legends about how that record was put together <laughs> i can't keep them all straight i do know that he yeah. did it all himself and he spent a lot of time doing it but i'm not sure yeah. the order it came out um my my feeling is um i'm still seeing a uh, billboard tweet, well, look who's been on the top 10 for the past two weeks. And it's the same artists over and over again. And so what did they do? Did they, is this music that is being programmed they sales at me? And they... Or, wait a minute, or what about, what about when I choose to listen to the new Taylor Swift? I mean, they know that too, uh, right? I don't think that counts any differently, whether you choose or not. I think it's just plays. And I believe that ad-supported plays count less than premium plays. So because Spotify has an ad supported tier, so it doesn't count as much. I, I think it's just aggregate, but with, with a multiplier, like a coefficient. Uh, I, was it a week ago that Taylor Swift had the top 10 on Billboard all to herself? Yeah, she had all yeah. top 10. Yeah. I mean, that's interesting and that's great for her, but what does it mean? It means that a lot of people listen to the entire album. Right, right, which is fine because isn't that what she wants people to do? That I'm glad they're doing that. But to me, the point of these lists doesn't really. I don't like lists. I can't. I don't. I don't. I don't see superlatives. Um, I don't like the best of and what are your top five things and that's my favorite song and I don't have that. I don't know why. I just I can't rate things like that and it's really difficult. But when you base it on sales and and listens. I guess it. I guess it's an interesting factoid that more people were listening to this song for a couple of weeks, and it's always fun to look back at other charts. But still, in the grand scheme of things in the universe, these lists of songs and how many people listen to them doesn't really make any sense to me. No, but here's what's interesting: the fact that Taylor Swift could have the ten top songs in the Billboard list in a given week is 
actually not an anomaly anymore because of the way people listen to music. If I look at the Billboard Hot 100, now we're recording this on November 17th, so this isn't going to come out for a couple of months. Taylor Swift <laughs> has number one. From number two to number nine is Drake and 21 Savage. Uh, number 10 is Sam Smith and Kim Petras. 11 and 12 is Drake. Steve Lacey is 13. That's not Steve Lacey, the jazz guy, is it? 14, 15, 16 is Drake and 21 Savage. 18 and 19, Drake. And So Taylor Swift has, she's got one number one and the rest of her stuff has dropped down the chart. A whole bunch of people listened to the record when it was released around the world millions, and no one's listening to it anymore. That's what it sounds like. Drake released a new record. A whole bunch of people listened to it for a week or two, and then boom. And that, I think, sociologically is a lot more interesting than anything else on the charts, because what it's showing is, well, first of all, the charts mean nothing because it's just that snapshot of time. Second, it shows people are listening to full albums for the most popular artist, but third, that the drop-off is so quick that it's short attention span. Well, like I said, people don't listen to albums on a regular basis like we used to, you know, and I, we tell this story over and over again. We had limited resources. We could buy one album a month, and that's what we listened to for a month. That was our new album, and we listened to it over and over and over and over again because that's all we had. Nowadays, there's no limit to what you want to listen to. If you get tired of listening to Taylor Swift's new album, I'm sure some people are like, okay, I listened to it. I know like two songs on it. That's the right that people think they have nowadays. It's like you get the album and you say, I like two, three songs on it. The rest of them, they can all go in the trash can. I don't care. I just don't understand that. So just buy the record. It's the whole, it's the whole, it's the whole painting. It's the whole experience. <laughs> yeah. So. Just a quick aside, I noticed something that someone I follow on Twitter who's a big Taylor Swift fan mentioned the word Swifties. Apparently Swifties are Taylor Swift fans. Yeah. I kind of think that the Grateful Dead started that with deadheads being fans of the dead. Did anyone say you that want to before? Think that they, you want to think the Grateful Dead invented everything. You want to think that the Grateful Dead invented the Everly Brothers and the Beatles <laughs> and, and the Sex Pistols and all that. But was there a word for Beatles fans? Uh, well, there was Beatlemania. There wasn't. So you were a Beatlemaniac? Well, that was that was a sociological thing. But was there a word for the fans? I don't think so. I need to look this up. Uh, I know that Lady Gaga... See, that was... The Deadheads was sort of organic, right? And Swifties is probably organic. But Lady Gaga wants her fans to be called Little Monsters for whatever reason. That's her choice. It's not like the, the, the fans decided we're going to call ourselves this. I, I, we'll have to look that up for another episode. I found that kind of interesting. That's very parenthetical of you. <laughs> well, the Grateful Dead did invent everything. Okay. Not oatmeal. Okay. <laughs> All right. Do we want to do some next tracks? Please. Do you have one? I do. I just found out this week about a box set release from a band that I really like, which has been out for a few months. I don't know why it took so long for me to find out. I discovered this through Burning Shed, which is a UK-based online dealer run by a couple of musicians, and they handle mostly prog rock bands, so all the King Crimson, things like that. There is a box set of Bebop Deluxe Live in the Air Age, their 1977 live album, which is... It's got to be one of the best live albums in the 1970s. It really does. And so this was a, it was an interesting album. It was technically, it was like a two and a half record. No, it was a one and a half record album. There was one LP and then there was a 12 inch single, 
right? So the one was a 33 and the other was a 45, 12-inch single. They did a tour of the UK and apparently they recorded, I believe it's 16 shows. And for the first time, all of these shows are available in this box set. Doug's mouth just opened there, big O indeed. And and I saw this, it's like, you know, as much as there's going to be repetition, that's something I really want to hear. And it's 97 pounds. And I figure, oh, I, I can't really spend that. And you know what? It's on Apple Music. Usually this sort of limited box set is not on the streaming services. What you don't get is a DVD of a... It looks like five tracks in concert, so a video, but you do get 14 hours of music of all these different concerts. So there's a new mix of the album, and then there's the, I think it's 16 different concerts, and there's some bonus tracks from John Peel Sessions. It's real, it, it is such a phenomenal record from the 70s and live, and Bill Nelson's guitar is amazing, and the band... Uh, they they fell apart after this, and Bill Nelson went in many different directions. None of the other musicians have ever done anything notable that I can remember. But this is just a snapshot of an extraordinary time. Now, I saw Bebop Deluxe Live opening for, you ready for this, Leonard Skinnerd at the Palladium in New York in late 76. That was a really interesting pairing. And I went to see Bebop Deluxe because I had already heard some of their stuff, but I got to hear Freebird as well. What have you got, Doug? I'm going to pick two albums this time, only because I'm trying to clear out my recently added bin. Uh, so the two albums are actually two recent albums. The first one is by The Buzzcocks, their first album since 2014. They're pretty much their first album without Pete Shelley since he passed away. And the second album is a, is a record by a woman named Nikki Lane in an album called Denim and Diamonds. The uh, Buzzcocks record called Sonics in the Soul, I've heard one track from it, and I thought, hey... That sounds pretty good. That is going to be worth listening to. I mean, I like the original Buzzcocks. They're nice and tight and poppy and all that stuff. This album, this the song I heard from it anyway, had all those elements. It, it, it was somewhat nostalgic, but uh, thoughtful. <laughs> you know, they're not thinking about being old guys. They're just thinking about being people. So that that's helpful. And then Nikki Lane uh, is a country, an alt-country singer. And this is, I think, her fourth album. This particular album is really a Josh Homme project. He is, of course, the lead singer and vocalist for Queens of the Stone Age and uh, any number of other bands. And he has produced this record, and I've heard one song from the Nikki Lane record, too, and it also has that Queens of the Stone Age quirkiness, but her real dynamic vocal. So, again, I'm looking forward to hearing that. So I've got two albums. Maybe you'll check them out, too. The Buzzcocks, Sonics in the Soul, and Nikki Lane, Denim and Diamonds. They're my next tracks. This was episode number 243 of The Next Track. Thanks for listening. You can start or join a conversation in the comments section of this episode's show page at our website. You'll also find links to some of the things we talked about in the show notes for this episode. Just visit thenexttrack.com. Follow us on Twitter at NextTrackCast. And don't forget to support The Next Track by making regular donations via Patreon. We're ad-free and self-sustaining, and it's the listener support that keeps us going. Visit patreon.com slash thenexttrack. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks again. We'll talk to you next time.